then once I know the things that I have to say, that I have to get across, then I think, how can I make people want to listen to this? And so it's just a matter of trying to make it interesting. Now, the way you try to make it interesting for kids is a little different than the way you try to make it interesting for adults, but not really. You use funny sounding words, you put jokes in, you make silly faces, you make silly noises. And it's, it's, you know, it's Mary Poppins. It's spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. If you, if you make it interesting, then there's a better chance they'll learn the thing you want them to learn. The C4L podcast is brought to you by Freshworks. Freshworks' vision is to enable companies and organizations of all sizes to nurture, acquire, and support customers for life. I'm Alan Bergson, and together we'll explore topics that give you the building blocks to better prepare your company to engage with your stakeholders. That is, your employees, your partners, your prospects, and yes, your customers. The C4L Podcast, helping you build the trust necessary to earn customers for life. Welcome to the C4L Podcast. I'm Alan Berkson, and my guest today is Jill Twiss. Jill is an Emmy and Peabody Award winner for her work as a senior writer at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. She's also a New York Times bestselling children's author. Welcome to the podcast, Jill. Thank you. It's very good to be here. So I was really looking forward to this conversation. I'm just thinking about the first time I met you you were trying to cut your toes off to fit them into a glass slipper, or maybe it was your heel. Um, yes, to explain that. Uh, <laughs> no, to explain that, I was uh, in a show. I was in the musical Into the Woods with Alan's wife, Jenny, who is astoundingly talented. And she played uh, the baker's wife and got beautiful songs. And I played an ugly stepsister and got nothing good and had to cut off my foot on the stage <laughs> wait was it did you do your toe or the heel do you remember i don't remember anything about being a stepsister on that show my dreams were always of being little red riding hood and so i've just blocked out every other role in the show for the rest of my life <laughs> wow well look I, I, today i want to talk about humor um and uh, look everybody thinks they're funny uh, and everybody thinks they understand humor and you you do it professionally, and you you know how the uh, as they say you know how the sausage is made, and it's it's much uglier and much tougher than most people think. Um, as a brand, as a company, we try to do it use humor to to lighten the load, we you know, to maybe engage with our customers, or maybe to get a message across in in a in a, a more fun kind of way. Um, but when it comes to business environments, it's a, a, a little tougher. I know that you're not a, you're not a business person, but if you had some advice for business people, just in terms of just starting to think about comedy and starting to approach uh, topics in terms of multiple audiences, uh, internal, external, I mean, how would you think about that? Sure. Um, I guess the first thing I'd say is if you know you're funny and you know you're great at jokes, you are almost certainly not a professional comedy writer. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can definitively say that I feel like I know less about comedy. I used to be positive that I knew what was funny and what what, what wasn't. And the second I started writing comedy professionally, I started going, oh, gosh, did I just write a joke or did I write a sentence? What have I done? And every other comedy writer I know is kind of the same way. So humor is entirely subjective. And that's important to know. If there were like a couple of vague tips I would give, um, read the room, 
read the room is the most important tip I could ever give in my life. And what that means basically is like, think about who you're talking to. Um, you know, if you're tweeting lately, I've been avoiding Twitter and avoiding the news and avoiding social media because it makes me anxious and feel like I want to throw up. But if I think I have a funny tweet, I will have my boyfriend go on Twitter and make sure that nothing horrible just happened such that I'm just going to be a monster for tweeting like my opinions on like, you know, puppies who wear good hats or whatever. <laughs> so read the room is hugely important. If you know, don't joke about things that are incredibly important to other people unless you're really skilled at it. I mean, I'm not saying you can't joke about everything. I'm saying there's a time to joke about everything. Um, and if there was another super general piece of advice that I would give, um, it's don't punch down. When you're telling jokes, it's great. But like, if you're telling jokes to a corporation, you can say funny things about the boss and that can be great. But if you're saying something funny and a little mean about, you know, the secretary that's making $50,000 a year less than you, it's a lot meaner, you know, and that's, that's the same thing for comedians. It's one thing to make jokes about the president because that's always punching up no matter who the president is. It's another thing to take like a random girl who said something dumb once on video and start insulting her. So like, as you're looking for what's fair to joke about, you can think, am I punching down or am I punching up? And am I reading the room? Is this even a time that people want humor right now? Right. I think as a brand, maybe I would the the equivalent of punching up or down would be don't don't make fun of your customers. It's okay to be self-deprecating. It's okay to make fun of yourself. Or uh, I mean, I guess that's that's the challenge that that, that brands face that that they don't want you don't want to make fun of your customers. That's 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 definitely the bad part, right? Right. Well, I don't know why you would. Um, I don't think it's helpful. But also uh, self-deprecating is a great way to soften the room in your favor, no matter who you are. You know, if you're willing to make fun of other people, they're going to accept it a lot more easily if you're able to make fun of yourself first. Right. Um, one of the things that, you know, you talked about tweeting and uh, you're I know you're a big fan of live tweeting, just like I'm a, a big fan of live tweeting. Um there's a thing called real-time marketing where brands try to inject themselves into events. The, one of the most famous ones was uh, Oreo. It, during the 2013 Super Bowl, there was a blackout, and Oreo said something to the – they tweeted something to the effect of, um, it's okay, you can still dunk in the dark. <laughs> and it was just – it went viral. It was just crazy how, how – um, but that's that's a really tough thing to accomplish. So – when you live tweet or when you're trying to get inject yourself into a real time situation, what goes through your head in terms of how you think about a topic? How, you know, is it, you know, you got to figure out what's the gist, what's important, where is the, the humor? I mean, what goes through your head? Cause I know that you do that a lot. I do. Um, and I mean, one thing I have to say is it can go very wrong and also, you can't predict what's going to go viral. So at some point you just have to live with the fact that like you might've written a tweet just as great as Oreo did that day. And everyone picked Oreo and that's just the way it is. And at a different moment, everyone would have rolled their eyes at Oreo and been like, look how insensitive Oreo is during this really important, whatever. So you just kind of have to face the fact that humor, you can't always predict how it's going to go. 
Um, when I'm live tweeting, I guess it's the same thing I think about with a joke in general. Um, a joke has to be like a weird mix of something everyone understands, but that they haven't thought of yet. And that's a really hard balance to find because if you joke about a commercial no one saw, your joke could be really funny and no one understands it. On the other hand, if you're doing like erectile dysfunction mess, like medicines last four hours, how crazy is that? That's a joke everyone already wrote. So you're always right. looking for that very thin observational line that is a thing people have experienced and understand, but that they didn't already think of. That's great. That, you know, that articulates something that I've thought about. I've, ne I've wondered about, but actually I, I like that a lot because it's trying to find, uh, for me, it's find, trying to find the gist uh, or, or the insight, but that's maybe, like you said, not, not everybody is paying attention or it's, or it's not cliche. It's not trite. It's not overplayed. Right. Well, and live tweeting is a chance to, to be ahead of everyone else. It's okay if you make a really logical and, you know, pretty simple observation in a live tweet because it's immediate. If you make that same joke a week later, it's not going to be funny because 4 million people already made that joke. So live tweeting, you can be a little easier on yourself as far as like how original the quality of your idea has to be and how brilliant your observation has to be because, you know, you're doing it in real time and everyone understands that. And also like feel free to erase it the next day. I feel very comfortable saying things I think are super clever in the moment. And like literally six hours later, I go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I ever thought that was funny. I just never <laughs> that and it's fine. You pretend it never happened. Right. So if you were going to manage or you, let's say you were going to hire someone to represent your brand and, and, and be and, and create content and you want them to enjoy, what would you look for in that person? What kind of a personality, skill set, background that, that would give you some, I mean, and maybe the answer is there's none, but I'm just curious, how, how would you look at it? If you had to hire someone to put on, to run your Twitter handle or to run your, your Facebook account and have them engage and, but be empathetic, but funny. Right. Um, I mean, it depends <laughs> on your company, because what I'm going to want to represent, you know, a cute little company that I own is going to be entirely different than, you know, if the Department of Homeland Security wants someone to tweet. Um, but in my case, I would look for someone who has kind of a unique voice so that the tweets might be sort of recognizable, even if you didn't see the name of who it was. Um, that's something I enjoy a lot. Again, I think it's going to be about someone who can read the room unless you want to like approve every single tweet they ever do. You're going to need somebody that you can trust to have some right. idea what's going on at the time and not jump in at the wrong time, not pick fights they don't need to pick. Um, I would want someone who can take risks and to do something really silly or try something in a time. But I also have to admit that those are risks and they really might not work out. Right. You, yeah, well, you do have to have trust. I, I definitely see that because uh, no, live uh, social media in general scares the crap out of marketing leaders and anytime they don't have they don't have what you said. I can't, uh, you know, line item approve everything that goes out. Um, Creates, creates a little conflict. It's a huge um, job. And I think a lot of places are hiring the lowest person on the totem pole to do it, or they're going, you know, you're 23, you understand social media, go crazy. And, 
you want somebody who is, you know, if they're representing your brand, you want someone that is just as skilled at that job as you want at any other job in the company. They have to be an expert at it. Do I hire a comedian? If you want a funny brand, I mean, this is a weird example, but I don't know if anyone remembers. Gosh, it, it was only a few weeks ago, but it seems like it was 43 years ago um, when Mike Bloomberg was running for president. He <laughs> very clearly hired a comedian. I mean, those were obviously not his tweets, and they were right. very old school, sort of old Letterman-y, Leno-ish, old school comedy tweets. Um, I don't know if it worked or not. I, I mean, it didn't work in that he is absolutely not going to be the president and it clearly didn't do anything for his campaign, but it like made a stir. He got a lot of attention. It supposedly tried to show that he was in on the joke. I don't know that for him in particular, you necessarily think of him as somebody that has a great comedic voice. So I'm not sure it was effective, but like it was a big choice and I kind of liked that he made it. So uh, let, let me talk about your books for a minute, because one of the things you try to do is you try to tell important topics, but with a lighter touch. And that's that's not that's that's a balance. Um, and I think that 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 there's a lot to be there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a, big, a good analogy for what brands try to do with when they're trying to educate uh, the market about what they do or, or tell or tell their story. They want to inject a little humor in there. Um, because you, you've you've done humor which is over the top, and you've done humor which is subtle. How do you how do you how do you approach that, or, or what advice would you give for people from that perspective? Sure. Um, for people who don't know, the first book I wrote, I actually wrote while I was out last week tonight, um, and it was called A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo. Um, and again, for people who don't know, Marlon Bundo is the actual bunny of our vice president, Mike Pence. Um, and Mike Pence's family was releasing a book about Marlon Bundo. Um, and we decided, or I pitched and they agreed to, uh, writing a book, a competing book, um, about Marlon Bundo in which Marlon Bundo fell in love with another boy bunny. Um, and they got married and a stink bug that looked a lot like Mike Pence, tried to stop them from getting married. Um, but, spoiler alert, uh, they, they got together and they lived happily ever after, and they're very cute. Um, I don't know that I thought a lot about how to do it at the time, because frankly, I thought it would never be published. I wrote it in about an hour and a half as a, as a, as a like, here's a thing to show my boss so that that way he'll have a better idea what he doesn't want. Since we didn't know exactly what the book was going to be, I was like, it's going to be easier if I just write a book. Um, it's a children's book. And, and then he'll be like, oh, now that I see that, because we weren't sure if we wanted to be actually for kids or for adults or whatever. And I thought, oh, he'll go, well, now that I see that, I realize I don't want this. I want this or whatever. Um, but what happened is I turned it in and he was like, great, we'll publish that. Um, so I now have to go back and be like, well, how did I do that? And why did I do that? Um, I think the, when I, I don't write for kids much different than I write for anyone else, which is that I have things that are really important to me that I want to get across. And then I think, how can I make this interesting 
to whoever is, you know, whether I'm, I was, you know, when I wrote for last week tonight, I might be writing about, you know, the China one child policy, which is not at all funny, or I might be writing about, you know, opioid addiction. And what I had to do is I had to go, what do we need to get across And then once I know the things that I have to say, that I have to get across, then I think, how can I make people want to listen to this? And so it's just a matter of trying to make it interesting. Now, the way you try to make it interesting for kids is a little different than the way you try to make it interesting for adults, but not really. You use funny sounding words. You put jokes in. You make silly faces. You make silly noises. And it's, it's, you know, it's Mary Poppins. It's spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. If you, if you make it interesting, then there's a better chance they'll learn the thing you want them to learn. But I, I, my key takeaway from what you said is you, you really have to know your audience well. And you have to understand. Yeah, you have to understand where they're coming from and uh, what they're, I, I guess, how they're going to contextualize what, you, what it is that you're saying. And for brands, that's part of what they're supposed to do. But I'm not sure that they always do that well. Well, and you can't um, beat it into them. And you also can't talk down to your audience. You know, I might have things I need to say that are, you know, my thoughts on gay marriage or on, you know, China's one child policy or on anything else. But I don't get to preach to people. I don't, you know, kids know if they're just being like preached to in a book and so do adults. You don't get to make them think what you want just because you think it. You get to hopefully gently tell them the things you want them to know and hopefully earn their trust such that, you know, and hopefully keep their interest such that they, you know, learn them at the end and make the decision on their own of, you know, on what they think about it. Right. All right. Now I have to ask you a question that's been on my mind for a long time. I've known you a long time and I really just, what is so compelling about spelling bees? Oh, Okay. Because so, <laughs> you're obsessed. I don't think it's not, it's not like you're a fan. You're a little obsessed. I would say it's reasonable to say I'm obsessed. Um, I have watched the National Spelling Bee for, I'm not obsessed in that I was ever into spelling bees. Like I, you know, I did them as a kid for a little bit. And then I found out that you had to, if you won the county spelling bee, you had to spell on stage at the state fair. And I was like, absolutely not. And I threw the spelling bee at that exact moment and I never did it again. Um, But as an adult, I started watching the National Spelling Bee, which is on ESPN every year, the script spelling bee. Um, And last, no, two years ago, I started writing sentences for the spelling bee. Um, And what I think is compelling about it is that It's sort of like reality shows before they're reality shows, like before everyone was on a reality show where you actually have to see what people are really like. Like these are kids that are 11 or 12. They're just not old enough to like cover up their emotions yet. They're in the most intense (laughs) thing that's ever happened in their life. You know, if you're watching someone on The Real Housewives now, you're not seeing a real person. You're seeing a persona they've created. And adults are kind of always in that position now. But like 11 year olds can't do that. They can't pretend they don't care. You know, so you're seeing these kids who are just delightful and smart and weird and funny. And they're in this circumstance where they're there for a week and they're surrounded by people just like them. So they're so happy 
because maybe they weren't all like cool in their school at home. <laughs> right. like when kids go to theater camp and suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, there's other people like me. So they're just having the best week of their lives. For the most part, having worked there, they know most of them aren't going to win. There are a few of them that spend every hour of their day studying for this. And then there's a whole bunch of kids who like made it to the national spelling bee and are thrilled. And they're pretty sure that's where it's going to end. And they don't care. Like they're just having a blast. Uh, You know, what I, what I might take, what I, what I, what I hear from this is something that I think is the, is the core of comedy, which is authenticity and truth, right? It's when you can get that, when people laugh at things cause they like, Oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> that's exactly the way. They, oh, that's funny. And that's what you're seeing here is authenticity, right? It's truth. It's, it's, it's real. It's also someone to root for in a way that I think for a lot of people it's sports. Um, and I don't get that into sports and I'm not a good person to watch sports with because I always root for whatever team is losing because I picture them like having to go home and tell their children, like I tried my best, but daddy just wasn't good enough. Today. <laughs> and then as soon as that team that was losing starts winning, then I, then the other team's losing. So then I start to think about like their lives are ter- anyway. So the point is, I think for me, spelling bees are like sports are for other people, except that like everyone in them is good. You know, you don't have what I think happens sometimes in sports, where if you really think about what's going on in some of these people's lives, you don't want to root for them quite as much. But in spelling <laughs> bees, they're all just delightful, weird, innocent children uh, that you just wanted to go well. Last year, they had eight winners, and it was the best thing that ever happened. No part of me wanted them to, like, have to go on longer. I wanted them all to win. Right. Oh, that's sweet. Well, Jill, this is this, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Um, if uh, if you want to keep up with Jill, I know you, she just launched a newsletter, uh, and I know that I find it quite entertaining. Jill, can you let everyone know um, how to keep up how to keep up with all things Jill Twist? How can they reach sure. you? How can they? Keep- I um luckily I think am maybe the most famous Jill Twist, so I got my name in everything. <laughs> Um, so my, uh, my Twitter, my Instagram is Jill Twist, J-I-L-L-T-W-I-S-S. Um, and I have a newsletter at jilltwist.substack.com. Fantastic. Well, Jill, thank you so much. Uh, I know I learned a lot today. I hope everybody else did too. And uh, hopefully we can uh, do this again sometime. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 